Thank you, Hannah. Well, good morning. Good morning. And happy Mother's Day to all the mums. It is uh, great to have you with us, and it's wonderful to be able to honour you and to celebrate you today. Let me just say, I guess because I have the microphone, a special happy Mother's Day to my wife, who became a mum for the second time a few weeks ago. Uh, someone pointed out to me last week, they said, Adam, you haven't shared the news with the congregation yet. And I said, good point. Uh, and so if you haven't heard, a few weeks ago, Molly and I had our second child, uh, a little baby girl that we named Eden. Everything's going well, and uh, we're just so thankful to God for this blessing and to you for your love and support. It's happy. Oh. <laughs> So happy Mother's Day to our mums. Now, if you are a mum, you are well aware that small children have the uncanny ability to embarrass their parents. Now, don't worry, you'll get revenge when they become teenagers. But in the meantime, your small children will put you in all different kinds of awkward situations. They'll tell stories they shouldn't. They'll share secrets with strangers. And sometimes, they will just make things up. Now, I've left the clicker in my bag, Porky. If you could grab that for me, that would be great. Sometimes, they just make things up. Now, I heard a story this week from a family in our church. Thank you very much. And their six-year-old son, it was his first day of school, and he was asked by the teacher, he and his classmates, to draw a picture of something that they had done on the holidays. And so he did what he was told, and at the end of the day, his mum arrived to pick him up, and the teacher explained what they'd been asked to do, and the mum had a chance to look at the picture. So she went over to his desk, and this is what she saw. Now, curious, she asked him what he had drawn. And then publicly and out loud in front of the teacher, he said, well, that's me playing the pokies, (laughs) and that's the rest of the family playing Keno while they eat dinner. (laughs) Now, this family has never played Keno in their life. (laughs) Kids say the darndest things. (laughs) And if you have small children, they will embarrass you. Today, we come to a, a story in the Bible where a woman is not just embarrassed by a child, But she is dragged by powerful people to be put on public display before others in a moment of deep shame and deep embarrassment. Now put yourself in the shoes of this woman for just a moment. Imagine if your moment of shame, that time that you did something you deeply regretted, that you wish you could take back, imagine if that was put on public display for all to see. Maybe it was a moment of infidelity. Maybe it was the time when you lied or cheated to to get ahead. Maybe it was the time you physically hurt someone or you cut someone down violently with your words. Maybe it was a moment as a parent, as a mum, The truth is, to be a mum is an incredible blessing from God. But it also can be incredibly difficult. And it can bring with it an incredible sense 
of guilt. I mean, Emma talks about it in the blog this week that hopefully you received on the handout on the way in. The reality is, for many mums, the constant comparison to other mums can be crushing. The overwhelming expectations can be crippling. Should a mum return to work or, or should she not? Should she breastfeed or should she bottle feed? Is she feeding her kids the right food? Organic, preservative-free, sugar-free, fun-free? Do her kids play five instruments and three sports and read Shakespeare? I mean, on and on we can go. Here's the way one mum describes it. For every day that I fall in bed satisfied with a day full of snuggles and sparkly, magical parenthood moments, there is another day in which I see my brokenness and failures to measure up to the perfect mother I always hoped I'd be. It's so easy to lose perspective and think that I'm the only one barely surviving some days of this wonderfully exhausting role called motherhood. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, well at least they get to be mums. I'd give anything, I'd endure anything to be a mum. Some women have been unable to conceive. Some have had abortions, some have never married. Which is why today we not only want to honour our mums, we also want to acknowledge the pain of others. We need to acknowledge that this is a difficult day for many. And that God is keenly aware of all that we hold in our hearts. All of the pain, all of the grief, all of the longing. Which is also why we need to remind ourselves that motherhood is not the pinnacle of womanhood. That God's ultimate goal in the life of a woman is not to make her a mum. It's to make her more like Christ. Wendy Alsop is a, a mother and an author and a teacher. And she's written an article called For Mums, Former Mums and Wannabe Mums. She says this. She says, motherhood is not the greatest good for the Christian woman. Whether you are a mum or not, don't get caught up in sentimentalism that sets it up as some saintly role. The greatest good is being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, motherhood is certainly one of God's primary tools in his arsenal for this purpose for women, but it is not the end itself. Being a mum doesn't make you saintly, believe me. Being a mum exposes all the ways you are a sinner, not a saint. Not being a mum and wanting to be one does too. We may long to get pregnant, looking at motherhood from afar. God sanctifies us through that longing. We may lose a pregnancy or a child and mourn the loss of our motherhood. God conforms us to Christ through that as well. We may have a brood of children of various ages and heaven knows God roots sin out of our hearts that way. It's all about the greatest good, being conformed to the image of Christ. And God uses both the presence and the absence of children in the lives of his daughters as a primary tool of conforming us to Christ. We're all carrying different baggage today. Some of us are, are very tired but very thankful. Others of us are, are wrestling with guilt. Some of us are weighed down by grief and longing, which is why we all need to meet Jesus, the friend of sinners and sufferers like us. And we're in a sermon series at the moment that we've called Meeting Jesus 
what we're doing is we're looking at a series of personal encounters that Jesus had with all different kinds of people in the Gospel of John. So far, we've looked at Jesus' interaction with a confused minister, Nicodemus, the religious leader, a social outcast last week, the the Samaritan woman at the well. And today, we're going to look at this encounter that Jesus has with the condemned woman in John chapter 8. Now, this is one of the most moving stories in the Bible. But the question that we need to answer before we even look at it is, should it be in the Bible? Now, you might be thinking, what are you talking about, Adam? Well, if you have your Bible open in front of you, you will see that this passage, this story, it might be in brackets or it perhaps has a a note above it. In my Bible, the note says this, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through to chapter 8, verse 11. In other words, this story was not found in the earliest copies of John's Gospel. It only started to show up a little bit later in time. And so here's the question. Was this story added in sometime after John had written his Gospel? See, the New Testament was written before the printing press was invented which means it was copied by hand. Now, fortunately, it was copied carefully, widely, and repeatedly, so that we literally have thousands of copies of the New Testament, around 5,800, which is way more, way more than any other ancient document. And it means that we are able to compare all of these different copies to be certain that what we have in our Bibles is what was written by the original New Testament authors. Now, when it comes to this story that we're looking at today, most scholars conclude that even if it wasn't an original part of John's Gospel, and sometimes it shows up in Luke's Gospel, sometimes it shows up most of the time in John's Gospel, even if it wasn't an original part of John's Gospel, the story itself is original. It's authentic. It's a historical event from the life of Jesus. Here's what Leon Morris says in his commentary. He says, throughout the history of the church, It has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. The Jesus that we meet here in John 8 is the same Jesus that we meet everywhere else in the Bible. In fact, the question that is answered by this story is the most fundamental question in the entire Bible. And that is, how does Jesus respond to guilty sinners caught in the act? How does Jesus treat someone caught in a moment of shame? And this is not a theoretical question. This was not a theoretical question for this woman. Her moment of shame was put on public display. In fact, it's even more than just public display. It's put on display in church and in front of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us that she is dragged into the temple courts. This is the place where Jesus was teaching a crowd of people about God's law. And this is probably not where she would have chosen to meet Jesus. But she didn't have a say in the matter. Verse 3, they made her stand before the group. But as we survey this scene, there's someone missing, isn't there? I mean, the act of adultery takes two people, and so where's the man? Has he run away like a coward? Has he left this woman to face the music on her own? Is this a case of chauvinism? You know, boys will be boys, but girls will be judged. 
The reality is that the Old Testament law confronted both guilty parties, both the adulterous man and the adulterous woman. And if the Pharisees, these religious leaders who hated Jesus and who dragged this woman before Jesus, if they were serious about justice being done in this instance, they would also have brought the man. But they don't, because they're not interested in justice being done. They're interested in discrediting Jesus. They're interested in trapping Jesus. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap. This woman is simply bait for them. And here's the trap. They take this woman, they place her before Jesus, they accuse her of adultery and say, Jesus, the Old Testament law says that this woman must be stoned. What do you say? Now, if Jesus refuses to uphold the punishment that was mandated by the Old Testament law, it would confirm their suspicions about him, that he doesn't take God's law seriously and their rejection of him is justified. On the other hand, Jesus' compassion for the outsider, for the lawbreaker, it's well known. And so a hard-line judgment in this case would discredit his ministry of mercy for the undeserving. What's he going to do? How's Jesus going to treat this guilty woman caught in the act? Well, getting back to our questions from a moment ago, how does Jesus respond to guilty sinners caught in the act? How does he treat people caught in a moment of shame? Now, this is so important for us because we all stand in the same position as this woman. Now, we might not have our moments of shame so brazenly dragged out into the open like she did. But everything we've done, everything we continue to do, it is open before the eyes of God. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. How does Jesus respond to guilty sinners caught in the act? Well, Jesus' response gives us a snapshot of true Christianity. It shows us what it looks like to meet the real Jesus. Because when you meet the real Jesus, two things happen. And we see both of these things in Jesus' response to this woman. The first is this. When you meet the real Jesus, guilty sinner caught in the acts, you are set free from the condemnation of your sin. Now the first thing that Jesus does in response to this scene is very odd. We're told that he kneels down and he writes in the dirt with his finger. Now he might just be taking the heat out of the situation. He might be making a point about God's law, which the Old Testament tells us was written with the finger of God. The reality is, we don't know what he's doing and we don't know what he wrote. But we do know what he says to the Pharisees in response. Verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now this has become a proverb in our culture and in our day. Now Jesus here is not dismissing the law of God as unimportant. What he's doing is exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. R.C. Sproul puts it well. He says he was speaking to people who were hypocritically bloodthirsty in their desire to shame and punish a person who had fallen. In other words, they had no concept of the grace of God. 
It is not wrong to punish criminals for their crimes, but it is wrong to convene an unofficial court, drag a person before such a court, and add insult to her injury. You see, the Pharisees were experts in the sin of this woman, but they were ignorant about their own. And so Jesus redirects their attention to its proper place. And they get the message, because they slowly slink away until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now imagine you're this woman. You're standing before Jesus, and she probably didn't realize it at the time, but Jesus was the one who could rightly condemn her. He was without sin. He had perfectly obeyed the law of God. He and he alone could cast the stone. But that's not what he does. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, madam, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. How does Jesus respond to guilty sinners? How does Jesus treat someone caught in a moment of shame? He says, neither do I condemn you. Because when Jesus went to the cross to die in our place, he bore the condemnation that our sin deserved so that we could have the forgiveness that we have not earned. This is the life-changing reality of God's grace. This is the consistent teaching of the Bible. For example, Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now, not 10 years from now when you clean your life up a little bit more, but right now, in this moment, now, no condemnation. Not a little bit less condemnation than before, but no condemnation, none at all. Now, you might have to apologize to someone. You might have experienced consequences from your decisions. But God has set you free from the condemnation of your sin. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not for the high achievers, not for the high earners, simply for those who are in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. This is real Christianity. This is where you start your journey with God. This is where you stand moment by moment, day by day, and this is where you stay never to leave. But even then, as amazing as this is, it's not the whole story. Because not only are we saved from something, from the condemnation of our sins, we are also saved for something. And this is the second thing that happens when you meet the real Jesus. You are set free from the condemnation of your sin and you are set free for a new life of obedience. Now again, look at what Jesus says to this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Notice what he does not say. He does not simply say, neither do I condemn you, full stop. I mean, that would be grace without a call for us to change. And God has big plans to change you, to change me, and to change this world. But notice also what he doesn't say. He doesn't say simply, go now and leave your life of sin. That would be demand without grace for our failures. And God is gracious to failures like you and me. Nor does he reverse the order and say, go now and leave your life of sin, and then I will not condemn you. That would be an impossible situation for us. 
No, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You're set free from the condemnation of your sin for new life with God. Not a life of perfection, but life in a new direction. Because with Jesus, guilty sinners are made alive. And they can begin to breathe and live again. So let me ask you, where do you find yourself in this story? Are you a bit like the self-righteous Pharisees? You're an expert in the sin of others. Your wife, your husband, your kids, our culture, our society. But ignorant, blind to the sin in your own heart. You've got stones and you're always throwing them at everyone else, but you're never asking, God, what do you want to do in my heart? And maybe you need to put down your stones. Maybe you need to humble yourself before Jesus and realize that your right standing with God is not based upon your righteousness, your superiority, but it's based upon the righteousness of Christ. Or maybe you're a bit more like the woman caught in the act. You're well aware of your guilt and your shame. You know precisely where you're lacking and where you've failed. And you need to receive the free gift of forgiveness in Jesus. You need to be sent out with new life with Jesus. Or maybe you're in the crowd. You're watching this unfold from a distance and you're not sure what to make of it. But the idea that you can come to God with your guilt, with your shame, with your sin... And that he will not condemn you or reject you, but he will receive you with compassion and grace and then send you out with a new life and a new identity. Sounds like the best news in the world. And that's because it is. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. There's nothing you've done that can keep you out and there's nothing you have to do to earn your way in. Jesus has done it all. And if you'll turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, the arms of God are open to you. Now, because this is Mother's Day, I want to close by applying this specifically to our mums. I want to share something I read this week, an article by a mum and an author named Gloria Furman. And I just want you to allow this to speak to you, all mums, whether your children are young or whether they're grown up whether you're a grandmother or whether you're pregnant right now, whether you're doing this solo or with a spouse, whether you're feeling lost or whether you're feeling in control, whether you're a spiritual mother or a stepmother, whether you long for a child, allow these words to speak to you. Gloria writes, she says, When the shadow of my own mummy guilt creeps up on me in dark moments, I need to bank on the blood-bought promises of God. I must draw on strength from the one who promised that he would finish the good work he started in me. I need to fight against a legalistic approach to motherhood with the strength that only God provides. I have to guard my heart against believing that today is my chance to be the best mum ever in order to be at peace with my guilty conscience tonight. I have an advocate who put himself forward as a sacrifice for my sin, so I have no need to prove myself. Jesus frees me from the need to constantly evaluate myself. Instead of obsessively doing mummyhood mirror checks, my heart can be taken up with Christ as I fix my eyes on him. 
With my affections bound up in Jesus, I'm free to look at the accomplishments of other mums and rejoice in the beauty of them. Like the way I enjoy the wonder of a newborn's tiny fingerprint without regard to myself. The gospel frees me to be the type of mum who replays the day in her mind and feels neither boastful pride nor wallowing self-pity, but joyful thanksgiving to the praise of God's glory. Whether our emotions agree, the verdict is in. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free to serve with the strength God supplies so that he gets the glory. We're free to lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. No amount of mummy guilt can crush you if Christ was crushed on the cross in your place. The atonement he achieved is enough to bear away our guilt and shame. And the promise of his presence is enough to sustain us through every morning routine, after-school activity, midnight mothering moment, and every other season. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus you have set us free from the condemnation of our sin and you have set us free for new life with you. Lord, this is nothing that we have earned but it's a gift that you freely give. Humble us this morning to receive it. Free us from the crushing weight of our guilt and shame and allow us to step forward into the future that you have for us, where Jesus reigns and rules, where we're empowered by your spirit to serve, to love, to raise children, to serve others, to be a part of your church family for the good of our community and for the glory of your name. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.